This episode of Inside Fashion is brought to you by Klarna. Klarna lets you shop now and pay later, interest-free, at leading online retailers. To add Klarna to your store, visit Klarna.com. Something's happening right now in fashion, Tim. I've felt for a while that the world is in a kind of pre-revolutionary state. It's inevitable that whatever is happening in the world gets reflected in fashion. The Comme des Garçons show. It felt very much like voices screaming from the margins. It's no time to be polite. You have to scream now. You can't whisper anymore. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. And this week on the BOF podcast, we look back at the fashion season that was. I talked to Tim Blanks, our editor at large, about saying farewell to Karl Lagerfeld at Chanel and Fendi, where there were emotional homages to one of the greatest fashion designers that ever was. We also discussed the explosive second collection from Hedy Sleeman, who moved to a bourgeois look at Celine. And we talk about the cultural impact and fashion's reflection on social issues that were being discussed in and around Fashion Week. So here's Tim Blanks, Inside Fashion. Tim Blanks, you just poured an entire well, you poured an espresso shot into double a glass of shot. a double espresso shot into a glass of water. What, Icy cold water. Why did you do that? It's my homemade Coca Cola. Hmm. Anyway, I guess you need it after the fashion month gone by. All that coffee. You said it. <laughs> How was the season? Um, it was. Uh, it, it was. It, it consolidated everything we've been saying about fashion for the last little while. Um, all roads lead to Paris. Hmm. Um, but there's this curious situation there that the first show of the day is at 9.30 in the morning, the last show is at 9.30 at night. In, on, a, on a few days, felt like it was 9.30 at night anyway, which, which makes for very, very long days and quite tiring because it feels like there is so much more in Paris. Um, well, than... you look fresh as a daisy. <laughs> Thank you. Someone does it modern science. Um, and my homemade Coca-Cola. You know, I, we we had quite a um, quite a season. There was a lot that happened off the runways as well, with the the passing of Karl Lagerfeld, um, the regular racism scandals that were you know erupting in different places. But let's start with the shows and talk about some of these kind of deeper issues a bit later. Um, I miss the Comme des Garçons show because I had to record a podcast because I'm so dedicated to our podcast. But it was your top show of the season. Talk to me about that you, show. You, you know that... Uh, you said it was devastating. I, I thought it was... I thought it was overwhelming. I thought that... Ray, Kaw Ray Kawakubo used to regularly nail the zeitgeist, I guess you'd call it. Um, and... I feel that her I feel that her interests kind of went elsewhere um, when she did, did that stretch of shows where she was where she wasn't really doing clothes. Um, she was she had other things on her mind, and then she reengaged with um, that process, according to an interview I read with her with Susanna Frankel um, last season. And this season was back to that, well, not back forward to um, a, a, a presentation that just seemed to really put us right where we are right now under the 
under the luring cloud of climate change and in a, in a world of increasing conflict and division. And she did it by, I felt she did it with, with, by using these sort of emblems of very high society, of a very, a very civilized society, you know, the dress codes of, of sort of the 18th century and paniers and, and, um, and uh, all those sort of, all the sort of silhouette ideas you associate with, with court dress almost. And then using these incredible industrial fabrics like well, rubber and, and pleather and so on, but making these beautiful, beautiful shapes that looked like to me like they'd been drowned in an oil spill. And then there was the whole staging of the show. It was much more choreographed than her shows usually are. Um, yeah, there was a big open space. Big, a square space. Usually and they, you have that narrow runway that's so small. And and usually, I mean, for years, everybody was on the same level. And, and this was very tightly tiered and very, very enclosed. It felt like a, you know, one of those courts that the Mayans used to play kind of proto-baseball with the heads of their enemies. It felt really closed in like that, really intense. The music was incredibly intense by um, a young DJ called Palmer Ham, who was spotted at the Rick Owen show earlier in the week with a three-foot-high mohawk. And he's um, Palmer Ham is part of a group of very young Londoners or very young British people who... Uh, one of whom, Salvia, did the makeup, did the prosthetic makeup on the Rick Owens show, and they're really pushing boundaries, uh, pushing limits on what's possible with the human form and and so on, and really defying orthodoxy in, in every way. And I feel as Comme des Garçons show absorbed a, some of that energy. It felt very, it didn't feel transgressive, but it felt it felt very much like voices screaming from the margins. And um, it was it was just so. Uh, there was one moment where the, this after this very very intense music, um, sort of intense kind of um, electronic music, and there's this little, this children's choir singing "All Things Bright and Beautiful." Mm -hmm. This was a weirdly angelic incongruous moment that ended in a massive explosion yeah. on the soundtrack. Um, that that felt to me like the quintessential moment of the show. So what does it take? I mean, I think our listeners um, out there were probably wondering, like, when when you're thinking about the top show of the season, what does that entail or encompass? Well, for me, and then, then this is a weird. This is a, this is why I can always be very positive about the primacy of the fashion show because much as it much as much as it sounds elitist and irritating to say you had to be there, it was an experience. It was a total sound and vision um, and sound vision and motion. And I think what I loved about it is that <laughs> being a natural apocalypsist myself, the tone of it was so, you know, you know, you have environmental scientists saying we can't pussyfoot around anymore. We have 12 years, 20 years, whatever. Yeah. People are saying we cannot wait a second longer. It's no time to be polite. You have to scream now. You can't whisper anymore. And I felt that show just screamed. Amazing. And it, it, it just completely, it, it, it screamed, it made, it, 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 it made its presence felt through all the noise around us. It mm -hmm. just bang. Cut through everything. Cut through everything. 
Yeah. And I think it's amazing that here is Rei Kawakubo, a, a Japanese designer in her 70s with the incredible career that she's had, um, redefining redefining all sorts of abstract notions and all sorts of, um, uh, um, you know, things to do with clothing or whatever. And then just bang, she makes this massive social statement. Mm. Um, yeah, I was definitely, I walked away from that understanding. You, you look around, you look around Comme des Garçons shows and there's often people sitting there crying and you're always a bit dry eyed. And this show, I, I, uh, I, f I felt, I, will, I felt it in me when I left. It was mm. still in me when I left. Mm. You did shed a tear at the end of the Chanel show. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wasn't at the Fendi show in Milan because I missed Milan this season. But we obviously can't talk about this season without addressing, you know, what it was like to have a fashion season without Karl Lagerfeld's physical presence, even though his designs were present. Talk to me about the way you think um, both Fendi and Chanel kind of handled and and communicated the way the houses were feeling in the wake of his death. Well, the irony was that they were both such vital shows, ex extremely on form. Uh, there was not for a moment the sense of um, elegy or uh, that you might expect. Um, because oh, maybe, he was but, working on them until yeah, the very end. Maybe that's not yeah. strictly true. I, I think maybe there was a sense. They ha, they ha, for me, there's been a sense in his work for a while of him focusing on things he's loved and revisiting things he's loved. Not, not that I think he would ever admit that, but I sort of had that feeling. Um, Fendi was, a, it was a beautiful show um and his presence was quite strong in that there were elements of his dress incorporated into the clothing now the the, the big the big thing of course was that um i mean michelle gobert who's his musical collaborator had um re reconfigured the fendi soundtrack so it was carl's favorite songs heroes and and it ended with heroes which yeah. david bowie which apparently is his was his favorite song which actually surprised me um, I don't know why I imagined it would be something by Mahler or what something more um, more classical, perhaps. But the, the, the soundtrack for Fendi was these, the mix of songs was was quite buoyant, you know, wasn't remotely sad. Um, and then for Chanel, Michelle used Philip Glass, which of course is soaring and spiritual and kind of celestial, and then um, ending in Heroes again, and. At the end of the Fendi show, there were a lot of tears backstage. There were a lot of tears. I, I'm, I had a lovely conversation with Sylvia, and it was it, to see how much he was just ingrained in people's lives at Fendi. Well, he'd been there for six decades. Well, it's, it's, it's basically it's your beloved grandfather dying, you know, and, 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 and the patriarch. And, and also Italians are emotional. Uh, there was a joke about how no, you know, in front of Paris, well, nobody will be crying at the end of the show in Paris because it's the French. The French don't cry, but but, and then obviously the, the Chanel show was huge. I mean, it was another great big rebuilding an Alpine village in inside the Grand Palais with smoke coming from the chimneys of the chalet and the, the snow deep and crisp and even on the ground. Not that weird synthetic snow either. It was quite nice fake snow. 
Yeah, it didn't and, stick to your shoes. No, and it didn't make me feel sort of asthmatic. Exactly. Um, and then at the end, and then it, again, a very super strong show, which reminded me of those wonderful shows in the 80s that celebrated the sort of bigness of Chanel and the, and the supermodelness of Chanel. And the girls came out and Heroes was playing and everybody stood up and just clapped and clapped and clapped. And... And waited. And waited. And almost, almost like they were waiting for him. I didn't, it was like weird. Everyone was craning their necks. And everybody stayed in the, in the, in the area. Yeah. Nobody ra- rushed like no out on the No one wanted to leave. Yeah. They just stood and clapped and clapped and clapped. And I found that with heroes. I could almost cry now thinking about it. I found that very, very emotional because that was probably the first time it really hit me. Because he, we didn't always see him at Fendi. I mean, he'd come out in the distance. We didn't always talk to him afterwards, but we always talked to him after Chanel. And it's, it really hit me that, oh, we won't be going backstage to talk to him ever again. I'll never have conversation 251 mm-hmm. with Karl Lagerfeld. I felt the same way. Yeah. I, I think I realized in that moment that, that you know, we had had that opportunity and it was... Um, was never going to happen again. And no. so I was starting to think back to our last conversation with him. And we we didn't get to talk to him in January because he didn't come to the show. So it was way back in October at the last Chanel show. So, yeah, that was, um, that was really sad. Well, I think also the finality of that at the end of the Chanel show, the finality, because that was it, you know, there's, oh, it's, you know, there's no way that he's going to, rise on the seventh day and emerge from the chalet door, um, roll back the stone on the chalet door. Um, the, the finality of it makes you reflect on your own finality. And I think you could see for, you could see for a lot of people who've been in the industry for a long time that that was, um, you know, suddenly the permanence that, that, that we feel, the permanent, the permanence that we feel we, thrive on in some weird way suddenly is it's exactly the same as it is in every other part of the world it's uh, it's 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 an illusion it's interesting because for people who've been in the industry for a really long time i guess that might be the reaction i saw some commentary on social media from a much younger generation who said that we were looking at it from a different vantage point which is this is the beginning of the end of that generation and it's making room for a new establishment, like a new group of people to, to, to kind of step in their shoes. Well, I know what you're talking about. And the day that that person steps into Karl Lagerfeld's shoes at Chanel <laughs> is the day I climb onto my iceberg and drift out into the ocean, <laughs> never to be seen again. Okay. Um, it was also the season of bourgeois and we saw this you know, throughout the season, probably most... Was it really the season of, of the bourgeoisie or was it just the season everybody talked about the idea? Because it's not exactly like... You think people talked about it because Hedy Sleeman put it on the runway yes. so it became a topic yes. and then yes, everyone yeah. said, oh, it's the season of yeah. the bourgeois. Everyone assuming that 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 what he, do, what he does um, presses, it presages a shift in sensibility and fashion as it's as it has in the past. It did seem like several other shows. I think Demna has been exploring this yeah. idea of Balenciaga for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, the, he's talked about the bourgeoisie a lot. Um, I thought the APC collection was a fabulous collection. 
And you could say that what Jean and, and Judith um, Tutu have been doing at APC is a bourgeois from day one. Yeah. Celebrating a certain kind of French dress that that is embodies that sort of you know that that, that ethos. Um, Eddie Slaman did it, did it. Um, I didn't see the show, but did it with enormous scale and conviction and um, and a as he does exactly as he does. There was no deviation. There was no um, theme and variation. It was you know hitting. The point home over and over again with a certain look but as someone pointed out to me it was less about the whole look and it was more about the bags and the outerwear and that's what some people say is really going to sell what do you think uh well isn't that what people always say no, I don't think they necessarily talk about the outerwear all the time. Bags, well, of course. Well, but was, was Celine before a clothing business? You know, Armani, uh, the one thing people have always said about Giorgio Armani is it's the scale of that. It, it's unique in that the scale of that business is based on clothing, not, yeah. not accessories. Wasn't Celine always very accessories heavy business? I think business? in Phoebe's era, it was definitely an accessories focused business. Uh, but I think what people were talking about was taking the model from Saint Laurent where Outerwear was a big driver of the business as well. Uh, it just so happens that this outerwear is, you know, was more in a, a different, a different aesthetic than that kind of rocker chic look that he well, became it, known it was for. An interesting, um, interesting speculative moment because, obviously, a comment we heard from a lot of people was that, oh, <clears throat> I won't have to buy the clothes because my mother has them all in her cub in her closet. Now, that was older women saying that because obviously younger women would have, wouldn't necessarily have mothers who were wearing that, that style of saline clothing from the original um, saline moment. Um, I, I just wondered, it was interesting for me, that, that it, would that look novel to young, to young women? It, looked, it definitely looked familiar to older women. Would the novelty appeal to the to young women, and would the familiarity appeal to older women? It's kind of an interesting uh, See, I schism. I don't there. even think it was about the novelty of the look. I think it was about catching everyone by surprise. So by doing his novelty of the look from Eddie Slaman, exactly. Yes, exactly by 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 doing his first collection very much in the vein of his his collections at Saint Laurent, everyone, you know responded quite um, vehemently in in either very positive or negative ways reacting to this you know continuation of that aesthetic and just as everyone thought that that's the direction he was going to take Celine he zagged and that created even more of a reaction this time. So two seasons in a row, arguably, he has the most talked about mm. show of the season. As it ever was before. Exactly. But it's interesting, as he zagged, that gave Anthony Vaccarello the chance to zig into the best Saint Laurent collection he's done. Yeah. So in a funny way, it, it, that, now that Eddie Slaman has clarified his Celine so graphically, Vaccarello has clarified his Saint Laurent with equal, with equal kind of clarity, with equal, unequally graphic. Well, the assertion was that the reason he did 
his first Celine collection the way he did was to stake his claim to that look, to that look before moving on to his new Celine look. Well, I think Anthony moved on, moved moved his Saint Laurent into Beccarello land um, very, very eff- efficiently with that show. Saint Laurent land, what am I saying? It was his Saint Laurent, it was a Saint Laurent collection, but mm-hmm. with a definite Beccarello sure. touch. Um, other, other collections that got a lot of interest this season um, were Jonathan Anderson's collections, both for his own label and for Loewe, and both of those shows made it into our top 10 of the season. What do you think is happening with Jonathan? Like why he seems to be hitting his stride, you know, he's you know, very rarely, I think, did he nail both collections in the same season. It always felt like to me that there was a bit of overlap. They're a bit blurry, but he seems to be getting more and more clarity about what J.W. Anderson is about and what Loewe is about. Well, do you uh, agree with that? Yeah, I, I definitely, because both those both the collections had very distinct voices. Yeah. Um, and and it's been it's been a wonderful watching him very perversely reinterpreting Lueve in the light of the Balearics, um, not not Madrid haute bourgeois like black leather, blah blah blah, but the gypsy girls on the beach in what, Ibiza, um, in Ibiza, yeah, with a little bit of mood elevating under their wings, uh, and he's done that for a while. The sort of artisanal. Not hippie chic, but a, 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 a focus on the craft, which he loves, because he, you know, that's his obsession, his craft. And this time I felt Madrid more in the collection, black and white, um, the lace, the, there was a, a sort of slightly lush severity, um, kind of Catholic, I guess. Um, I, I don't, I don't know enough about Spanish artists to say, you know, oh, there's a Velasquez quote or whatever, but that last look with a, with the lace and a, and a jacket and a, um, the black jacket and the black skirt, um, was so beautiful. Um, and so, and, and you could see that look fin- at closing a collection, which led into where he's going to take Lueve next. And. It seems like he always seems like he's having a lot of fun with what he does. I think um, his men shows his and his women shows for both both the labels. There's always there's always a kind of perverse playfulness in them. But I guess he's getting more serious. And well, he's he's growing up too, yes, right? You yeah, know, he's, he's now a experienced designer with more than a decade of experience behind him. He's working in a fairly big luxury goods house at a big luxury goods group. So, like, he can't just be, you know, winging but, but it he, anymore. He, but no, but he did. He did bring both. Both he did bring those businesses along with that sort of, with that interest in things that were quite unique to him, actually. Yeah. And and so I think it's wonderful to see, to see it coming to fruition in both places so effectively. But also, but also with such promise, you know, for the future. Yeah, and for me, it seemed like everything was a lot more finished and polished. Now it's almost like he's, you know, when you see a designer continually refining what they do, and they just get it to that certain point where it's like it all like works. And it, apparently, it's working from a business standpoint too. Well, there's so many bits and pieces. There's, yeah. there's shoes and bags and. 
and jewelry and, and things that look really desirable. You can see people desiring them mm -hmm. in the audience. Mm -hmm. And I guess one surprise of the season was a standout show from Victoria Beckham, who's kind of never made it into our top shows of the season. What did what do you think clicked for her this season? It was it was just so smart and it was so edited and it was so coherent and and you know it's it it has been so funny since Phoebe Phoebe Philo left Celine. Um, that 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 vacuum. Everyone's jockeying. Where, where would where yeah. where where does the Phoebe girl where does the Phoebe woman go to 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 fill that void in her heart and her closet? And Victoria Beckham was always put forward as somebody who was you know who was jockeying for that for that role. And I think if you insofar as you want to make comparisons which can be a bit invidious i think she that this is clo the closest she's ever got but it was it, the collection just was what i liked about it was it was very straightforward but it wasn't boring you know it was it, it each look was very direct and there wasn't any folder roll and fanciness but it wasn't it, it was minimal but it wasn't boring you know that 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 old helmet lang holy grail that you could make clothes that were minimal but were sensual and 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 eye catching and I think that Victoria Beckham hit that sweet spot. Yeah, I bumped into her and her new CEO Paolo Riva on the train back from Paris, and they were there was four of them sitting there, and they were they were seeming very buoyant. I think they had a really good sales season in Paris too. So. Um, yeah, let's see. The, the other person looking to take Phoebe's crown um, was a new designer at Bottega Veneta, Daniel Lee. Um, how did that go for you? I was, um, considering how long we've been waiting for that collection, I was surprised at how um, it wasn't, well, I guess it wasn't what I was expecting after all that time and speculation and anticipation. I thought it was... Um, you know, something about Thomas Meyer's clothes, considering, especially considering that Bottega was a business built on a billion dollars worth of bags. And um, I mean, I think the last time I looked, more than 90, maybe more than 95% of the revenue came from leather goods. Yeah, I just don't think his clothes ever got the Right, so the real the way to judge deserved. Daniel Lee is going to be on how those bags do, no? Yes, yes. Um, because the clothes... As I as I said when I wrote about the the clothes were uh, were very matrixy to me. Um, there was a lot of leather for sure, but uh, I I wouldn't. I'm not. I'm not saying that he was he was going to follow on from Thomas. He was going to take the reins of what Thomas Meyer did. But some of those clothes were so strange and so haunting and and timeless that this collection was very much a you know bang in yeah, the moment they wanted a disruption mm -hmm. right? well, it was there was a definite disruption right whether it works remains to be seen yeah i mean you you could see on instagram you could see the people who who were loving it and you yeah. were thinking oh that's not the bottega vanity customer so maybe that kind of works 
maybe that does kind of work for them. I think I I got the feeling Karen was kind of hoping for an Alessandro Michele type disruption there, which is, you know, the Thomas Meyer template had been in place since basically the beginning of the kind of rejuvenation well, or renovation of Bottega Veneta. And, you know, after I think it was 16 or 17 years, you know, don't quote me on it because I can't remember exactly the number of years, but it was, you know, more than 15 years at the helm. They were looking for some kind of change. You know, the business has been shrinking. I think it shrunk by 3.6% last year. So, you know, they're looking for someone to... Well, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting point, but Gucci got the um, disruption through Busey. And Bottega seems to be going for the disruption through brutalism. Hmm. Okay. I did get the feeling, though, Tim, that... This season, as you mentioned early on, that um, it feels like Fashion Month is increasingly consolidating in Paris. You know, with we used to do this when we used to do this conversation. We used to cover each city and talk about each city, but it, that didn't feel like the right way to structure the conversation this time. And I guess Paris has always been the most important fashion week. But one person I spoke to said to me this season that. They think fashion is moving into a situation kind of like the technology world where it's a winner take all. And just in the way that, you know, Google controls everything around search and, you know, Amazon controls everything around e-commerce, you know, the biggest player. uh, This person said to me that Paris is increasingly playing that role. And it's got the Olympics coming up as well. So, um... but why do you think that's happening? Because I think uh, it's set up to happen. Uh, Paris is a city where fashion, the the showing and the selling of fashion works most efficiently. Why? I have no idea. I have no idea. I guess because it's actually been um, it's actually been where a lot of people have always gone to do their business for a long time, and more and more people have been going there because everybody's asking the question, where where is the best place for me to show? Where is the best place for me to sell? And Paris is the best place to show because that's where you get the biggest audience, the most global audience. And obviously Paris is increasingly the best place to sell as well for the same reason. And what, I've, what I'm hearing is that more and more people, even if they choose to show their collections elsewhere, they feel like they have to sell their collection in Paris. Yeah, I heard that too, but I might have heard it from you. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see how Fashion Month evolves. It, it, it. I have always said from the time I started covering fashion in the mists of, um, before, before Game of Thrones was even a thing, <laughs> um, I, the shows in Paris were always the best, always the best production values, always the best, even if it was a small show. Everything was, it was, they were so put together. You could go to a new designer and you'd get a bigger, you'd get a, you'd get a better notion of what they were about than if that same designer had showed anywhere else. This is a support. Uh, the, the city is geared towards fashion. You know, the joke is always, you, you get into a taxi cab and the t- the, you, you say where you're going, the taxi, the cab driver knows what show you're going to. I mm. mean, that is a little bit of an urban myth, but um, 
And they it, at least know the names of the designers yeah. and they understand that fashion is big business. And, and, they, when, you, you and when you're in town for the shows and you see like Eddie Slaman building his huge big construction here and Saint Laurent building a big construction there and, and something else going on somewhere else in the, the Cour Carré, you see the stuff being trucked in for Louis Vuitton. Um, you know, there's just this whole, the city is, is energized by fashion in a way that no other city is. So it's, that's the city where you feel the thrill of fashion more than any, anywhere else. So, you know, if I was a designer, that's where I'd go. One other topic I wanted to address is something that didn't happen, at, you know, necessarily linked to fashion week, but, um, kind of became one of the dominant themes of the season, which is the repeated mistakes that brands are making um, around, you know, what many people to be perceived to be as kind of racist products or racist imagery or racist advertising. Um, So, you know, of course, back in the autumn, we had the issue around Dolce & Gabbana and that, um, ill-advised campaign for a show that they wanted to do in China. And then, you know, the rants by Stefano Gabbana uh, on Instagram uh, saying completely inappropriate racist things about Chinese people and the Chinese fashion industry. But then we had the issue with Prada and their, you know, blackface um, keychain. We had the issue with Gucci and the blackface balaclava, and then we had Burberry and the noose that appeared on the runway. And not necessarily all of these things were happening actually on the runway, but something's something's happening right now in fashion, Tim. And I, you know, given your um, long perspective on the industry, and you know, you know, for over three decades of going to fashion week and seeing this industry develop. I'm really curious as to why you think this is happening now. Uh, I suppose every, everybody, everybody looking at what, what's going on in the world traces it back to the, the fact that Donald Trump in the White House has created a very divisive, um, a very divisive atmosphere in the world. Uh, he's dividing not just countries, but communities and um, and I think that I, I've felt for a while that, that the world is in a kind of pre-revolutionary state. I feel that what's been happening with um, social media, what's been happening with things like Facebook, people are suddenly, not suddenly, but they're coming to grips with the fact that they've, they've actually surrendered an awful lot of freedom. And what does it mean to be free? And um, I think there's there's a sort of now or never uh, um, mood, like I talked about before, gripping activists um, around the world for all the causes they're active in. And racism is such an enduring toxin in uh, in society and every everywhere, everywhere in the world, every 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 country in the world has as a uh, racist racist issues and i think fashion i mean you could argue that we're in some ways we all have those 
biases, these unconscious biases, which are now surfacing. Yeah, because human beings are tribal, tribal animals. But I think that what's different now is that there is, a, there is an urgency to address the issues. Fashion has always been, you know, the fashion, the glass of fashion, the mirror of fashion. It's inevitable that whatever is happening in the world gets reflected in fashion. And the antidote to, to a lot of the issues that are, that are bringing us down is education. And there just hasn't really been any concerted effort to educate. And also, fashion hasn't been an, an, an instinctively diverse business because the great fashion houses have never embraced diversity as a policy. Um, it, Italy's, it, when, the, when you talk to Italians, I mean, obviously now they're, they're really keen to um, redress that imbalance. But they say, you know, we, we've, it's never, a fashion house in Italy is just what it is. We have yeah, our is interns. That an excuse and, when your customer base is a global customer base, when people, you know, when China has become the largest fashion market in the world, when you are seating rappers and, um, you know, people from the urban and hip hop community in your front row because they help to sell clothes, how can, how can you, how can you, you know, hold your hands up and claim ignorance and say, we need to be educated? Well, they are holding their hands up and, and saying we were ignorant and we, we're, we're going to do our very best not to be ignorant again. We're going to initiate educational programs, diversity programs. We're going to have diversity councils. We're going to set up scholarships all around the world so that people are being trained in all their different communities and we'll be bringing all this awareness into our business, you know, that, that, that we do not want these things to happen again, that education is the solution. And um, because education will breed will breed a, an, a, a, an, a, an understanding and an acceptance of, of points of view that, are, that are, aren't yours. You so. know what some people outside fashion asked me? They said, we could understand how it happened once. And so, for example, when the leaving the Dolce & Gabbana scandal aside, because I think that's a separate issue and that was just, you know, absolutely, you know, just unacceptable. Um, after the Prada keychain issue happened, and that became a global story before the new year, you know, wouldn't you think, they asked me, wouldn't you think that brands would double down and go, but wow, when, we need to be really... But remember, the, 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 but when the, I think when the Prada, when the Prada, whatever they were called, the charge keys, whatever that, that accessories group yeah. was called, was developed. The Gucci balaclava was already done. It had already been out. I mean, so it had been on the runway, but it hadn't been marketed on the product yeah. um, as a product so for it had sale. Already happened. So, yeah. so the the that moment that 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 was a sort of looking back at something rather than something that was happening in the moment it was it was it was um exhuming something that had already happened the 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 burberry noose highlighted for me um how you know how how much there still is how far there still is to go and how you can see education and diversity within the 
creative community inside a house would hopefully head off things like that. Because I still think, you know, this, this is early days. It's early days for all of it, for Me Too, for Time's Up, for all of these activist um, consciousness raising um, efforts that it's not, it, the issues are so ingrained and, 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 and for such a long time, culturally, for you know, all of history, they're not gonna, hey presto, tomorrow morning it's all, it's all over and done with. There's gonna be this soul searching that goes on probably forevermore. I mean, if, if we have 12 years or 20 years left, um, there's, this is gonna go on. And because there's always gonna be things that, there's always gonna be things that slip through that noose, for example. You would think, wow, that is such a trigger. How the hell did it end up after, especially after everything that had happened? But there's always going to be something like that that, that nobody even thought about. Um, and, and, and then how do you keep people so alert, so sensitive, so that, that, is, a, that is a challenge. And, and I, think, I think that that, um, that uh, sensitivity um, has to has to be on every level of society. It, it can't, you know, it can't just be fashion designers being, you know, well, being aware of what yeah, I mean, the consequences than, of what they do. More than sensitivity, I think it's also understanding, right? So that I think the notion of blackface is, you know, it's a particularly, you know, toxic topic, especially in the U.S. Yeah, but, but it's a toxic, not something it's a, with a history of understanding or or discussion in other parts of the world but when you're when you're you, when you're Prada or you're Gucci and you're marketing to a global customer base you have to have an understanding of these issues all around the world but it, that it's, it's such, such a, a sensitivity it's such a toxic you know? issue but um, yeah. when you look at something like black lives matter um and then you look at Paul Manafort's sentence today today and that that absolutely ingrained one rule for some one rule for the rest hmm. that's the kind of thing that has to change to make to, to filter down through every other level of society and fashion obviously is is integrated into into society and when you start changing those kinds those glaring inequities which are just you know black kids are still being gunned down in the street and and uh, white collar criminals are, are still getting off with a slap on the wrist, and and that's after all the consciousness consciousness raising that has been going on in the media under the, the current president and and everything we're going through here with Brexit, you know, the soul searching, the examining what makes the country what it is, but the things that have to change are act actually massive. And you know that that's not going to happen mm. in a, overnight. I just I always I always find it so interesting how fashion is a mirror and a reflection of these issues that are happening in the world. And so everyone who thinks that Fashion Week is a you know a, a superficial, frivolous indulgence, well, for me, I think, and for you, Tim, it's like a really great way to make sense of what's happening but it's around not just us. a reflection yeah. it's a projection as well yeah. so it, so it you, can be if it's used consciously yes, in yes. that way so you see fashions fashions turmoil 
over um, over an issue that the issues that we've seen recently reflects what's happening everywhere else, but then also projects a way forward, which is these educational initiatives that that they're putting in place, houses yeah. are putting in place. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that slightly more serious note, um, thank you for your thoughts on autumn winter 2019. Uh, I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, here with Tim Blanks, our editor-at-large. We are saying farewell for this season. And for this week on Inside Fashion, please tune in next week for more from us. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Share it with your friends. Um, We are proud to tell you BOF's podcasts have now received over 2 million downloads all around the world. So clearly you are enjoying these conversations. Give us your feedback. Tell us what you want to hear about. We are here to chat about the issues that you want to hear. So with that little plug, I am signing off. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might be interested in BOF Professional, our global membership community from the business of fashion. BOF Professional members receive unlimited access to all of our articles, daily members-only analysis, the BOF Professional iPhone app, biannual print issues, and all of our online education courses as part of your membership. For a limited time only, we are offering BOF Podcast listeners an exclusive discount on an annual BOF Professional membership. To get 25% off of your first year, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package, and enter the special invitation code PODCAST2019 at the checkout. We hope you enjoy it, and don't forget to tell your friends.